Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say my guest today is Peter Carey. Peter's new novel, Parrot and Olivier in America, is set in the early 19th century when America's democracy could still be called fledgling, an intriguing or worrying experiment to European visitors such as Parrot and Olivier. The story is told through two contrasting voices, that of Olivier, the young French aristocrat whose parents survived the terror, and Parrot, the son of an itinerant English typesetter. This unlikely couple are brought together by circumstance, and together find themselves in America as master and servant. Olivier is charged ostensibly with investigating the new democracy's penal system, and Parrot is charged with keeping an eye on Olivier. There are echoes, of course, of the real travels in America by the French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville, but the voices of the two men, and the relationship between them that grows from antipathy to friendship, is pure carey. As is Parrot's earlier life, which sees him taken to Australia. But America, as the title makes clear, is a real focus of the book. So I began by asking Peter what it was about his experience in present-day America that had prompted him to look back at its past. In this particular case, I've been living in in the United States for 20 years. I mean, I'm a political person. I vote. I did fundraisers for Obama. I have two American children. And I'm also an Australian with an Australian passport. I, like many of the people in the world, I think were, you know, the many things that were distress me about our present life. And one of them is, is, is the, the total dumbing down of popular culture, which we see, or culture generally, which we see all about us every day. And I was also particularly concerned of the corrupt and, and, and very undemocratic government of the United States, as we saw during the Bush years, or the Cheney years probably would be more accurate. And that led through to a situation where a person like Sarah Palin might possibly end up being the leader of the United States. So these things sort of obsess me every day. You know, I just go home and shout. I don't really watch television except there's one news, current affairs show I watch. Sit there and shout at the television, you know, which is like... And then I, re- I, I read this, this book, which Americans know very well, but I didn't know at all, written in the 1830s by French aristocrat who'd visited America, who was worried about these very things. And I got very excited. I mean, it's always exciting for me in, in my work, generally speaking. Uh, like a book like Jack Maggs happens to be alive for me because I see in, in reading or thinking about the past, I see the present vividly enacted. Mm. And suddenly I, I say, here's this French aristocrat who shouldn't have known anything, really. He's 25 years old. He didn't stay in the United States for all that time. But among the things that he's really worried about are the dumbing down of culture uh, in a democracy. He had a great fear of the, the, the called the tyranny of the majority, which a term which I first coming upon feel great suspicion of. And he also imagines, you know, when looking at American democracy, the possibility of a moron coming to be run the country. And of course, at that very moment, I'm, I'm deep in that in real life. And so I took the trouble to, 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 to read his book and, and then set out uh, to, to imagine a, quite a different journey from a similar sort of a character. The real life figure traveled with his aristocratic friend whose name was Beaumont and they wrote about prisons and they wrote about all sorts of things. And they traveled around being French aristocrats together. So. There I leave all of this because uh, I, I have in mind a sort of an argument, the sort of argument that might take place between a French aristocrat and someone like Parrot, 
who's the son of a English itinerant printer and um, quite much more sort of radical in his politics. Everything in his life in sort of seemingly the opposite of what the aristocrat is. And I, and, I, and I thought, how can I put them together? And how can I have a sort of an ongoing argument about the nature of democracy for these two people, which is at the same time full of life and energy and humour? And um, so that was sort of my idea. And then in the end, I sort of find out who these guys are and make them up a little bit at a time. And uh, I didn't. At the beginning, it seemed a hopeless task. How could I possibly imagine a French aristocrat of the 19th century. But I somehow found a voice for him. And when I found a sort of voice for him, then I knew I could do the rest of it. And Parrot, who I just read in a sort of an Australian accent, because it's I'm not an actor, I'm a writer, but to make clear some difference with Olivia, is also not a, not, a, not a big stretch for me as an Australian who's in a generation, in some cases, and two generations in other, so away from being British. So and indeed was brought up by a, partly by a grandfather who had never been to Britain but called England home. On the back of the, the book, the adjective picaresque is applied to their adventures. I wondered if you thought picaresque was a, was a useful word, if that, if that captured some of what you were doing. Well, you know, I, I have to confess that uh, when I wrote Illywhack of many years ago and people said it was picaresque, I had to say, what do you mean picaresque? <laughs> And I think we've explained that the picaresque, the picaresque novel is a story of a picaro or a, a, a sort of a whatever. What, what, what would we call him? Not not a not a, a, a not a villain, but a, a tricky fellow, perhaps. You know, and, and his and his adventures. And then there's a way in which one can look at a parrot, you know, in that light. And perhaps it perhaps it suggests a sort of character and, and the sort of nature of you know parrots adventures and, 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 and leads you to, to, to expect energy and humour. I don't know whether it leads you to expect pain as well. I've got no idea. But I think probably in, in general it tends not to. Yeah, I, I would think so, yeah. So, there, there, so as well as, there, as, well as there's being, a, I hope, a great deal of, of humour within this and a great deal of sort of hijinks in a way, both of these characters are also carrying a, a considerable degree of pain. It is not in any sense... A sad novel, but like in life, you know, people who are full of life and, and humour are often carrying a considerable degree of pain, and both of these characters are. Tell me about this sense which Olivier has very strongly of living in the shadow of the French Revolution, in the aftermath, in a period when he says at one point all the great men are dead, mm. he's living in the shadow of his own family tree. Because mm. that sense is quite profound that times have changed and He's got to find, you know, what his place in the world is. Yes. Well, he's in a very difficult position. He's in a he's in a difficult position in that way. But if I might go back a step, also for that, he is the child of survivors of the terror. So we know in life, I have three friends who are the child of survivor, children of survivors of the Holocaust, and I know a little about the trauma and the toll that it takes through the generation. And it was that that made me think, what must it have been like to be the child of your grandfather's been beheaded and you have, you, both of your parents were that far away from, from, from being guillotined when Robespierre was got rid of? 
So I'm not a great apologist for the, for the, for the aristocrats of France at that time, but you're just thinking you're through your character emotionally. So that was the first thing I, I, th- I thought this is, a, this is, and it fitted with what I'd known about Tocqueville too, and her mother always sick, but, and him, him being sort of a hypochondriac, the doctor always being called for and so on. And then the other part is just sort of historically true of that class at that time. By then it's really clear or it's uh, it's clear to the smarter members of the aristocracy anyway that democracy is not something that's going to stop. You know, the king may be trying to forget that it's there or that it happened, and they're they're trying to roll back the revolution. But in fact, it can't be rolled back, and democracy will happen. And so the Olivier Olivier character recognizes that that is so, but he doesn't really. Well, he's certainly very. For personal reasons, if you think of the family history, he's, he's terrified of the mob. Uh, the majority, the notion of the majority ruling for him is a horror. But yet he knows that there's America, and then in America, which we forget now, in America's you know, conservative imperial coat, that what a daring and radical thing that it was, that you know, America predated the French Revolution. Well, we know that, of course, but in a funny way, on a daily level, you, know, you sort of forget it. So he knows that this great experiment's taking place. So he's naturally thinking, how can I go forward? How can I be a human in the future? My family in the past have led countries and been, you know, and, and, and as a noble being born into my position, I would expect to have a huge role in the future of my country with the king at court and so on. But that's going to be denied to me now. So what can I do to take my place in history? And so America, the, the, the experience of America, the things that have happened in America are very interesting to him personally. And of course, there are all sorts of things that happen in America. Well, firstly, firstly it seems vulgar and, and, and coarse and those sorts of things. But there are other things which seem really rather exciting. And America is at once sort of exciting you know, he, th- he sees no centralism there at all, which is not quite correct, and it isn't quite of the American future. But so, so somebody who's, who's felt himself tyrannized by by, by, by centralism, America's very, very attractive. And then there are things that, that, that are not attractive. And there's a woman who's very attractive, which falling in love uh, with someone can always change, change our views about so many things. And, and, and so he's goes backwards and forwards about America, but all the way, looking for a way in which this might work in France. Tell me a bit about Parrot, because he too has this challenge of, you know, self-invention. And there's been a a period in his life in Australia where it seems he has invented a a particular sort of self. But when he is then yoked to Olivier, he's back being a servant in an era where being a servant has become particularly uncomfortable. Yes. And I think, and I think also that Parrot being the strongly opinionated, sort of slightly disrespectful, slightly radical person that he is, wouldn't have really thought that he was really being a servant at all, that he was doing this for the meantime. He was doing it with some style and grace and disrespect, so everything was sort of fine. And a certain time comes uh, in New York where he finally has to confront the fact that this is what he has done with his life. He has allowed himself to be a servant. And all around him, there are people, his lover and uh, uh, Mathilde, who's a wonderful painter, and other He can suddenly see that they've done these things with their life and he's done nothing. He who thought he would be a great artist. So this is a big moment in, in the book and 
in his life. So in Australia, well, where he'd spent some time uh, by, by misadventure rather than being transported, although, of course, physically transported, but not transported by a, a, a judge or a court, he had begun to make something of himself. And he was clearly, in my imagining of him, talented. He was in a place where not many people could teach him a lot more than he knew, but he was seemed to be becoming one of those colonial artists who will be valued by history, I think. And then this uh, French Marquis character who keeps on turning up drags him away, you know, in the end tricks him away from there and says, anyway, come to Paris and you'll learn things and you'll see things, and, and he allows himself to go. And, and, uh, and thus doing that loses a whole possible life that he might have had in Australia. He says at one point, I was a better man in New South Wales. And there's a wonderful, wonderful scene in the novel where he is confronted with the evidence of his former self. And Olivier is, is narrating this scene and he, he's kind of narrating it as comedy. And then then gradually it dawns on him what what has actually happened and that, that his servant does have this whole other life. Well, he, he, he they're, they're, they're in Philadelphia when this occurs. And uh, there's a wonderful Frenchman who has an extraordinarily good library. Quite a surprise to, to Olivier, who wouldn't have expected such a library you know, in such a place. And in looking through the books in the library, they come across, or Parrot comes across, the others are not really paying attention to him, comes across these engravings and cries out, and um, I did it, or something like that. And, 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 and Olivier's first thought is he's, his servant has spilt wine on the engravings. And so and then the story comes out that, in fact, these particular engravings he, Parrot, had done. And he'd done them for the Marquis, and he thought they were going to a particular place. And anyway, here they are in a book, and, and with not with his name on it, but someone else's name on it. And at that moment, we learn a great amount about Parrot's history and what he's gone through to reach that place. And certainly Olivier learns, as you said, a great deal about his servant. There's, that sort of brings up the notion of, of forging and fabricating, and there's a great deal of that. Those, I suppose, are, are carry themes or, or interests. There's a lot of um, things going under the false names in this book. Yeah, there are. It's, uh, you know, I don't know how to excuse myself anymore or explain myself or, you know, the question of what is true and what is not, what is real, what has real value, what doesn't. I stumble around in these waters all the time. Uh, Play in the waters, maybe mm. is better. There's a at, at the at the there's a map in um, this part of, of the book, which uh, is a real map, which I found, in which some artist in about I think about 1828, it's beautifully drawn and detailed, shows this huge sort of delta, uh, the delta of Australia up, which goes right into the desert of Australia. So it's as if in the northern part there's this, all these waters and rivers and anyway, I found that particular map and I thought and I so I like. The notion of Parrot being commanded to produce this map for the Marquis for reasons we don't need to go in, into here. I like the way in which the map represented a, a sort of a wish. It's almost like a national wish of, of Australia and Australians. The way in which it could be used by the Marquis for sort of political advantage in Paris, because if that was true, then... And I just thought it was fun. There's this map, which we always believe maps so much. And you look at the map, everything's labelled. That's completely not true. So, well, how do I explain explain you know, the mischievous sort of glee I get from that map? Mm. 
and it works thematically and it works in all yeah. sorts of other ways in the book. I don't know. Well, I, I enjoyed it too, so don't, don't you have to <laughs> explain it away. I'd, it's a wonderful inky book. I began noticing instances of ink in the book right from the beginning where Parrot is uh, apprenticed as a printer's devil, and I guess they got the name Prentice Devil from the fact they got ink on their faces and became black. All the way through the book, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a funny moment where Parrot actually wonders if he tried to force-feed Olivier carbon paper. <laughs> Was, is that another Kerry fingerprint or something that you were sort of self-consciously having fun with? No, I wasn't at all, really. I was, I was thinking, you know, carbon, carbon paper does just, just fit uh, with the dates for the book. Really, you need the typewriter later, I think, for it to really work. But he was to be a spy and, a, and, a, and an informer and... Uh, and he was meant to write notes and send a copy to, to Olivier's mother. So that's why the carbon paper is there. So we know he has to be carrying the carbon paper in his trunk, and he's in a rage. So at that moment, I think, you know, well, what, how is he going to express his rage? And I think the novelist part is sort of looking around the room, thinking what is in the room that he is going to use to express that. And, of course, he has the carbon paper in his trunk, and so therefore the thought of, yeah, stuffing, stuffing, living his mouth with carbon paper uh, seems uh, appropriate. Presumably you had fun with the parallels between the observations of Olivier, particularly in the new world and present day reality. Well, yes, of course. I mean, one of, one of the ways in which one knows that experience is being Australian, one knows these two ways of looking at the world. And, you know, we're, uh, we're parrot, and Olivier are going to have two, uh, two different views. So the Americans are going to have a very different view of themselves to the one that these two characters have. And, and growing up in Australia, one was very dependent upon the views of others, of views from outsiders to be endorsed by, you know, by an Englishman was very necessary for us. And, and uh, we would continually invite praise and, 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 and uh, we would get we would be very loud and we would be very boastful and and when people didn't like who we were we'd be very offended so although that's not quite the same as the two views one grows one grew up with knowing that there were two ways to look at oneself you could look at whether the way that we like to look at ourselves but there was this other view that we courted so it's not odd and also of course that's what novelists do all the time that, that we know that yeah the truth is not simple that the truth is that there are, there's an argument going on there's the argument about the way the world works and there's a way that what it looks like and what it feels like and what it smells like and that's why multiple points of view is of satisfying to us but presumably plotting that was quite a quite a major operation having these two viewpoints and deciding who was going to narrate which scene so that it so that it all fitted together I think there are things that after after a while, after you've done it for written for long enough, there are things that you can do instinctively when you know what the story is. And I think I would say that for the most part, those sort of broad decisions were instinctive. But of course, that's to forget all the times in the book when you know the book's not working, when you you have this sneaky feeling that it's dragged on too long at this bit. Or you have this worry about how you're going to get this other bit of the plot to fit here without, and so on. So, so to say it's instinctive is just too cute. For, you know, it is that, and then you make errors, things don't work, and you're forever uh, working at it to make to make the rhythms of the story and the different points of view work. 
And of course, the, the relationship between the two men is changing, it's developing from one of, yes. of animosity to, to something much more close to friendship. Yes, and that's, then that's something that sort of seems fine in theory, you know, and in fact, it's essential for the book that this happened. And, and it was essential before I knew who either of them were at all. But then when you're in the middle of it and you've set up the antagonism, <laughs> you know, where, you know, parrots calling... Parrots calling Libya and Lord Mig Migraine and, 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 and all sorts of snob nose. Or so. I, I can't even remember. Lots of insulting names. And, and certainly, you know, Olivia would have Parrot put in jail. And, and they, they, they loathe each other. So that's all working fine. That has a certain sort of humorous dynamic to it. But, you, you know, okay, I'm there now. But now I've got to get from there <laughs> to the next bit. How are we going to affect uh, their, their changed relationship? And, um, well, reader, I did it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there are very, well, one of the things that I did was, was, was have, have, have uh, discovered he'd, he'd arrived in America and, and without any money. And, in fact, the, the person who'd actually drawn up the financial instruments, which would supply their money, was none other than Parrot. And Parrot had made himself a co-signatory. So there was no way Olivia could put Parrot in jail. And so the, the, their relationship really does begin with, with, with a very, you know, the practical issue of uh, survival and money. Mm. Well, I suppose money is always important in novels, isn't it? But money in the new world is, and, and right from the beginning, is, is clearly a significant force in this book. Yes, and, and very difficult to find out about when you're researching. I mean, uh, there's some things, there's all sorts of things you know, about money and how... And, and how uh, Money is transferred. How bankers work, what sort of coins are used, you know. So you, you know, and if you if you haven't taken an interest in this before, and you've got to find out, then you discover well, the weight of a gold coin, wherever it came it came from, is really what has the value. And you discover that America is full of all sorts of millions of banknotes from different banks, some of which are very very unreliable, and which if you accept a dollar there, you might get twenty cents for it, and. Mm. So there's all sorts of very interesting things to find out about money in the period. And, of course, the other really interesting thing uh, when you talk about parallels between the past and the present is that at this particular stage of American history, Andrew Jackson was the president, and Andrew Jackson was engaged in continual war with, the, with the, I think, the First Bank of the United States, which had the people's money and held it, but was independently run and was a political force of itself and was being more conservative than Andrew Jackson in certain ways could be argued to be acting against the people's, the elected representatives of the people's desires with the people's money. And so there was this great fight going on between the government and the banks, which, of course, does have some sort of parallel with the present stage. In fact, I ended the, the date, the date I ended the book on was is, was the date of the of a great economic crash. So that this, this particular, uh, the, the book in, the imagined book goes to its imagined printer uh, on the very day of, of a crash. My, 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 my book was pretty close to doing, doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we talked about Tocqueville at the beginning. Audubon's book of, Brit of um, North Americans of North America is also a, a sort of meta text to this book. But did you did you go back and read some of the, the great master-servant relationships of literature when you were writing this book? No, and indeed... 
Indeed, I didn't really think, you know, in the end, one realised that, and as one's well into it, halfway into it, you know, that you're writing about a master-servant relationship. The beginning, I wasn't really thinking like that. I was thinking more about the argument between these two men. And certainly it was an important point for me uh, in the development of the character, the, the character of, of Parrot, to have him realise that he had allowed himself to become a servant and he hadn't really thought of himself like that until then. So I was not, it was only after when the book was done and somebody here at Faber you know, sort of said, well, you know, who are the other, what are the other books with the great master-servant relationships? And, uh, you know, and I, I immediately thought of Don Quixote. And, uh, but that, that hadn't been in my mind at all. Peter Kay, thank you very much. Thank you very much.